had a chance. I know some of you have not met Tom and Deb yet. Uh, they are a long, long time part of this church, and, uh, but also just great friends, and it's good to see. They surprised us at the fall conference. They came home early and then just showed up. I told them they're sneaky, but a good kind of sneaky. Um, yeah, we leave Tuesday night, the Haiti team. We fly out late Tuesday, early uh, Wednesday morning. And uh, while we're there in Haiti, we're going to be doing a couple of things. Uh, Brian is connected with an orphanage, a couple of pastors in an orphanage there. And we're going to spend a couple of days at the orphanage. We're going to do some training with the teachers and the staff there. Um, but we're also going to just play with kids. And, uh, you know, one of the things about orphans, of course, they have no parents, and there's no dad, right? There's no dad loving on them. And we just go get for a couple of days just to go be, be like dads to these kids and play with them and, and let them crawl all over us and have a good time. Um, but we're also going to be spending some time with pastors uh, a couple of the nights and a couple of the mornings, Saturday and Sunday morning, and then Thursday, Friday night. Uh, we have some services that we'll be preaching at. We're actually doing a pastor's conference, and as of right now, we don't know if we'll have two or 25 or 200 pastors. We have no idea, and so we're going a little bit blind, but we know that God's going to do a great thing. I do want to encourage you in this. As you pray for us, would you also be praying for our families? Uh, just remember them as, as we're away. Uh, there's one more member of our team, a guy named Paul, who lives in uh, South Carolina, is a long-term, a long-time friend of Brian's, and he'll be meeting us at the airport in Miami and then joining us over in Haiti. And then you can check social media from time to time. As, as we have internet, we'll provide updates for you all. Would you, uh, <clears throat> I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning uh, we're going to actually jump around a little bit, but, but ultimately we're going to land in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Um, and so I'm going to have all the verses on the screen today, uh, but we're going to land in 2 Timothy uh, ultimately before we make some points. We'll continue our series called Love Your Neighbor. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, the story that Jesus told, this parable that Jesus told, which uh, in that culture and in that context was an extreme story. When questioned about, you know, what should I do to be saved, and, and, and Jesus' response to the expert in the law, well, what does the law say? You, you tell me. And he says, well, love God and, and love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. You've given me a technically correct answer. And then the expert in the law says this, wanting to justify himself, he says, who is my neighbor. And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and I'd explain the fact that, that in that culture, for Jesus to tell the story the way he did uh, was really extreme. That, that the fact that a Samaritan man would care for a Jewish man who had been beaten up and robbed uh, would have kind of, not kind of, would have rocked the boat. Those that were hearing that story would have been impacted by what Jesus was saying um, and, and kind of shocked by what they heard, especially consider, considering that the priest and the Levite, who both should have known better, who were both Jewish, ignored their brother in need, and it was the person who, even as Jesus says, the despised Samaritan, though it was the one that came to his aid and his care. And so when we understand that story in context, we know that Jesus was kind of touching on some sensitive areas, and he didn't shy away. Talked last week about the fact that before we can love people out in the world, we need to start here. 
And that God's word tells us that the, the world will know us by the love that we have for each other. And so that commitment to love our neighbor begins with us. It begins right here in this house. And that we need to keep walking in that way. This morning, though, we're going to look outside of the four walls of the church, as it were. And um, I feel like this morning's message is one um, where we're going to jump into the deep end. And, and I feel like, I, I, I'm, a, I'm not a big heights guy, I don't like heights. We used to go to this pool when I was a kid, and, and they had a big diving board. And, and my sister would go up to the top, like the platform, and just jump off. My sister's crazy. I would get on the little springboard thing and I would stand at the edge for like 20 minutes because I'm like, that, that water looks like it's a far, a long way off. I feel like this morning we're about to jump off of a really tall platform into some very deep water. And so I want to ask as we jump into today's conversation that you would allow your heart to receive with grace, that you would allow your mind to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. And, uh, and hear me out, because we're going to talk this morning about racism and prejudice and discrimination. We're going to talk a little bit about immigration. We're going to talk about some things that really are blowing up in our country, but not just in our country, around the world. And then we're going to have a conversation about something that could very easily be politicized, but my goal this morning is to not have a political conversation. I'd like to have a kingdom of God conversation. And, and, and for us in this room to, to kind of hit a reset button and come back to understanding what the heart of God is when it comes to issues of prejudice and racism and discrimination and understand the direction that the Lord would want to give to us. We understand this, that racism, prejudice, and discrimination take all kinds of forms. And, and, uh, and of course, with racism, it specifically relating to skin color. But then going into prejudice and discrimination, and we get into not just race, but religion, and culture, and gender, and disability, and all kinds and all manner of things. That, that, that draw dividing lines between people, which, can I just say right up front, is not the heart of God. That God does not build walls between people. He unifies people. He is a God that is united. The, Holy, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, live in perfect unity, and His design for us, His creation, is that we would follow the same and live in perfect unity. It's no secret that as a nation, we're not doing well in this area. And it's not getting better. It's not getting better. We're getting worse every day with every news report, with every Facebook post, with every bit of rhetoric and dialogue and uh, political statements. It's like we're throwing gasoline on a fire that is out of control. And I believe that God would want to bring uh, temperance he would want to de-escalate de what the enemy is wanting to, de to escalate in our community, not turn a blind eye to things, to situations, to circumstances, and to people's realities, but to really come to the Word of God and say, what does God have to say about this, and what is our appropriate response as the church of Jesus Christ? This, earlier this week, our president, Foursquare Glenn Burris, issued a statement uh, about DACA. 
the immigration policy, and he very rarely does uh, issues this kind of statement, but uh, this week he did, and you can read that, you can find that online yourself, if you check out his Facebook uh, page, you can find it there, Um, and I don't want to get into the particulars of this, but this is what I noticed, the responses to his post from believers was atrocious. The language used against this man of God did not sound like Christian language. Doesn't matter what your political standing is or, or where you fall in the issue, the way that he was addressed in public online blew my mind. Christian leaders who were who in public in that form were saying things that I wouldn't say in private to someone. And my heart broke. Of course, I was already set to preach on this message, but it seems like every week that goes by, there's just more and more and more and more that we have to try and comprehend and understand. It's an important issue for the body of Christ to address, and the reality is we don't talk about this nearly enough. I want to make a a note here, and I've said this already But I'm going to say it again. This isn't about politics. This is about people. This isn't about politics. This is about people. And my goal today is not to persuade you one way or another politically to to shift your stance on a particular issue. And, And the reality is this isn't even about culture. This is all about the kingdom of God and what God's word says about how we're called to live as his children. We sang about that this morning. I am a child of God, that the fear has been broken. In fact, we sang about that multiple times. And once again, right, Jesse and, and the team, you, you've picked songs, you selected songs without knowing where I was going. And you say, this is the Holy Spirit reinforcing and telling us, this is what I want you to understand about my heart today. The kingdom of God must always be our starting and ending point as children of God. See, I mentioned in God's nature, he is perfect. His perfect unity and his desire for us, again, is that we would live in unity. It's, in, it's important to note, though, that unity is not the same as uniformity. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. And, and what ends up happening is that people become afraid of what they don't know, that they're not fami- what they're not familiar with, what they don't understand. And so we just try to make everything look the same. Our missiology, the way that we've done missions as a church, not, not, just, not as a four-square church, but a big C church, was this. We've exported a brand over the last hundred years, a brand of Christianity that seek, uh, sought to go to different nations and not just tell them about Jesus, but also export a brand of culture where we would build white churches with steeples and tell people how they were supposed to dress because that's what Christians do. Without stopping to consider people's ways of lives or their culture, and there has been so much damage, and I love that, especially within our Foursquare family, that the conversation with our missiology is, hey, can we just bring Jesus and then let God do what he needs to do within the culture? Because we do not have the corner on the market when it comes to figuring out how to live in America and in the West. Would you agree with that this morning? We don't have it all figured out. The power of unity is demonstrated in diversity. 
The power of unity is demonstrated in diversity. I can be united with people that look like me and act like me and are just exactly like me, and that's not really unity. Unity is demonstrated in diversity. And so we have to get to that place in our hearts. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. Jesus, when instructing the disciples how to pray, says this. Pray like this. Or when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, may your, king, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Another translation says, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth. And that our prayer should be, God, would you cause heaven, uh, earth to reflect heaven, not the other way around. That there would be an expression of heaven here on earth, that people would see a glimpse and get a glimpse of what heaven is like here on earth. So the question begs to be asked, what does heaven look like? I'm so glad you asked, let me tell you. Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29 says this, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is, listen to this, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus and now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Did you catch that? No Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, male or female. Revelation 5.9, and they sang a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 7, 9 through 10, after this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count. From every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language standing around the throne of God declaring His praise. Colossians 3, 9 through 11 don't lie to each other, for you, who have, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and it, all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. So let me ask you, what are you here? What does heaven sound like? Sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? That all of the things that divide us here on earth don't exist in heaven. That when we stand in the presence of God, when Christ is the Lord of my life, that all of the things that matter here on earth fade away. When we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done, what we're saying, God, is would you remove the barriers that, that have been established between us in this world so that we can more closely reflect what heaven is like. Christ is all that matters. 
What I'd like to do this morning is I want to share my story, a little bit of my story. I've never done this before in this kind of setting, and I shared before service during our prayer time. I'm a little nervous, and, and here's why. I was born and raised in South Africa as a white South African, and I've carried for many years a certain amount of shame that comes because of my heritage. Because, as you probably know, South Africa was the land of apartheid. And I was born into that system of government. And I've never really talked about it in a public setting. And I'm thankful that God has brought healing. In fact, I was at a pastor's conference about 10 years ago. And most of the pastors in the room were black pastors, African-American brothers, and we were talking about racial reconciliation, and I recognized in my own heart that there were some unresolved issues and some things that, that I had not repented of in my life, and I stood in front of a, a room of about 100 men who didn't know me and I didn't know them, and I repented for what I had grown up in and what I had come to believe was the norm and acceptable and I'll share a little bit more about that. And God's done some great healing, but I've never come to a place where I felt like I could stand in the pulpit and even address this because the thinking in my mind has always been, who am I to talk about this? I'm a white South African. Until I remembered this, I'm a child of God. I'm a son of the Most High. And that he's put words of reconciliation in his word and in my mouth. And my hope this morning is that what you hear is the healing that's available and the reconciliation that's available at the foot of the cross. And in fact, we will conclude our time today by breaking bread and sharing communion. I was born in South Africa in the 1970s when apartheid was at its height. Apartheid simply means, it's an Afrikaans word that means separate or separateness. And it was a system that was devised by a white government living in a majority African nation to really control people. The way that it was disguised was this, apartheid was about maintaining culture and language and distinctiveness that we wouldn't have this confusion about who is who. And that was like the, the pretty flowery language that was used but the real intent of it was to oppress people, to subjugate them, to keep them in a place where they were controlled. And all through my education, not, not so much overtly, but, 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 but kind of below the radar, the messages that I heard growing up were these, that black people could not be trusted, that black people were not as intelligent as white people that I was to walk in fear of black people, and that as a white person, that I had to always be looking out of my over my shoulder because there was going to be some black man or black woman who wanted to hurt me or harm me or take away what belonged to me rightfully. Of course, I went to a school initially that was just all white students, segregation, uh, Right, it was in full, full force and full effect. If I went on a city bus, there were no black people. Black people had their buses, and 
as white people, we had our transportation. And if I went to the mall, there were very few black people. If there were black people there, they were serving uh, in the restaurants or, or cleaning or working in the stores. But black people growing up in South Africa were not allowed to go to the mall or go to a shopping center, at least not the ones where the white people were. This is what I grew up in. Now as a kid, you, you don't know where you're a kid. You just see what's around you and you just, your worldview is shaped by what the norm is. This is just what you see. But there was a moment in my life where I realized something was wrong. It was a, a birthday party for myself. I'd started going to a private school, a Catholic school, and, and there was a handful of black kids because the private schools were not subject to the same uh, segregation as the, the public schools were. And so Christian Brothers College, Mount Edmund in Pretoria is where I was going to school. I was in third grade. And there was one black kid in my class. His name was Kapano Makabo. And I really didn't get the fact that he was a black kid. He was just my friend. We just hung out. And I invited him to my birthday party. And I remember standing in our living room on Colburn Street in Pretoria. And all my friends were there and family was there. And they were, of course, all white. And Capano showed up. He was a little bit late because he had to take a different bus to get there. And I remember him walking in, and the room went silent, and all of these white people just looked at this guy. And I was standing, and there was this awkward moment that as a kid, I didn't understand. What is happening here? Well, a few minutes passed, and everyone just kind of resumed, and, you know, and I went over and said hi. But, but that stuck in my heart even all these years later. Something's wrong and it started for me, this engagement. I'd grown up in church. I'd known Jesus all growing up. Um, in fact, even our church, we had a few black people in our church. Our church was not a segregated church. Um, but it was not comfortable for a black person to even go to a church that wasn't segregated. Because even believers, spirit-filled believers, there was still just this underlying fear. And so it was rare to even worship with a black person. But I started realizing that something was wrong. And as I got older and I started re reading more of the Bible for myself, and really at about eight or nine years old, I started to recognize that what I was learning in church and what I was seeing around me in my nation did not jive. They did not connect. They were not in unity. And then I got to come visit the United States of America for the first time. And I saw something different. And I remember my first time here in Los Angeles in 1981. I just wanted to come back. Because I loved what I saw in this country. Because I didn't see the same things as I saw in South Africa. And I didn't have the same tension here. Even as a kid, recognized I didn't have the same tension here as I did there. I want to show you a picture of someone. Nelson Mandela, South Africa, we call him Madiba, like dad. I grew up being taught that this man was a terrorist. 
that he was the enemy and that he was seeking to undermine my way of life. Now, I grew up in a wealthy home. I grew up in privilege, and it wasn't just white privilege. I, was, I grew up in a wealthy home, never wanted for anything. And I remember conversations even with family members talking about he wasn't called Madiba then because he was still in prison for 27 years. He was in prison in Robben Island in Cape Town. I was taught this man was the enemy. And then in 1989, he was released from prison. President F.W. de Klerk, a white man, a white president, started making change in South Africa, recognizing he too recognized something is wrong. And really, you had to be really ignorant to recognize to not recognize something was really out of place. The rest of the world knew something was wrong. Nelson Mandela was released from prison, and the people of South Africa were really divided into two parts. Those who were afraid that things were going to blow up. Thank you. That things were going to blow up. That there would be white people slaughtered in the streets, and that Black people who had been prevented from traveling from their villages and the communities because even travel was restricted that with the release of Nelson Mandela that there would be chaos and that Nelson Mandela would usher in a season of ethnic cleansing in South Africa. And what happened was the exact opposite. Nelson Mandela, his time in prison, he came out of prison with a heart for reconciliation and unity. And in fact, our, our flag shown in the back there, has multiple colors, and South Africa became known as the Rainbow Nation. Great movie, by the way, Invictus, uh, about the South African rugby team. If you've never seen it, if you want to understand his heart and the way that he operated, probably the best movie you could watch that depicts that. Matt Damon, by the way, did an awesome South African accent, too. It was really good. <laughs> It's a hard one to master. He called for reconciliation in our nation. In fact, he started, along with Desmond Tutu, he started something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And for two years, people were able to come and share their stories and ask for forgiveness. And for those that came and shared their stories on both sides, the atrocities that they had committed... They were pardoned and free to be a part of this new South Africa, of this new rainbow nation. And we saw a shift in our country and a shift in the culture. I've only visited back in South Africa once since Nelson Mandela became president. But I know the South Africa that I went back to visit was not the same South Africa that I left. Schools integrated, government integrated, and it's not perfect, and, and, and there's a lot of problems in our nation in South Africa still, but this man stepped up to the plate and said, no, we're not going to go the way of every other nation that's come out of colonialism on this continent. We're going to do something different, and he won over 250 awards for his work in racial reconciliation including the Nobel Peace Prize. A billion people watched his inauguration on TV. Amazing, amazing man. I was taught that he was a criminal. And, and indeed, some of the things by definition that he did in wanting to overthrow the government were terrorist kind of things. 
But he was doing it because there was a people that was oppressed, living in fear for their lives. Coming to this country has been the greatest blessing or one of the greatest blessings in my life. But can I tell you right now, my heart is breaking over what I'm seeing and hearing in our country. Because over the last few weeks and months, I've felt more like I'm back in South Africa in the 1970s and 80s than I am in the United States of America. My heart breaks for our nation, and I believe God's heart breaks for our nation. I want to invite Isaac to come join me. I want to bring this a little closer to home. I'm an immigrant, by the way, as you can tell. So is Isaac. Isaac and I... We're both born in Africa. We both immigrated to this nation. We both made this, home, this nation our home. But here's what I know. That there are assumptions and conclusions that people will draw by looking at the two of us. Based on one thing and one thing alone. The color of our skin. But he's my brother. He's my brother. And I was lied to as a kid. I get to go back to Kenya and hang out with some of your family and your friends. And I love them as brothers and sisters. The power of God to undo the lie and remove the fear and bring a love. There's nothing else like it in the world. So I was talking to Isaac last night about coming and standing with me. And I I just asked him, so what, has there been anything in your experience in the United States that where you've experienced prejudice and uh, his heart is so kind, if you know Isaac, he's he's like, well, I, I I can't really think of anything. And he goes, but you know, on Friday night, is it all right if I share this real quick? Yeah. Friday night, Isaac was here serving our church. By the way, Friday nights we do set up, little quick plug for our Levites team. If you're free on Friday nights, come help set up. It's, it's fun, and we get to serve our church. We need you. Come talk to Isaac. <laughs> come talk to Andrew. Isaac was here setting up, and he was over on the corner setting up the banner. And he had walked back up over here to the container, and a policeman pulled up. The cop said, what? Uh, were you over there digging? <laughs> Were you over in the corner digging? Someone called the police department and reported that there was someone in front of the school digging in the grass. We've been putting those signs out for two and a half years, and this has never happened. I love, and, and he was very kind, yeah, and, and you guys had to a little chat. Isaac went home and relayed to Cherie what happened, and Cherie goes, Isaac, it's because you're black. <laughs> And, he, and, and he's like, oh. I'm like, oh, I didn't see that. Right? I didn't see it. Now, we don't know. Whoever made that phone call, we don't know. They might have just genuinely said, hey, something's happening here. But it sure looks like prejudice is alive and well right here in Glendora. That if I was out there putting up that sign, there probably wouldn't have been a phone call. But here's the irony I was born in Africa.
Thank you. We can't live this way, church. We can't live this way, and we can't presume to know what people's stories are. We don't know where people are coming from and what they've walked through. And it doesn't matter what the color of their skin is, or what their gender is, or whatever fill-in-the-blank is. The only way you can know someone's story and where they're coming from is if you ask. And you can only ask if you're in relationship with them. And you can only be in relationship with them if you genuinely love them with the love of the Lord. So love your neighbor. And have a conversation. And rather than posting something on Facebook that someone else posted, that someone else posted, that someone else posted, let's just have a dialogue and have a conversation that leads to healing and not more brokenness. See, because... Well, you've heard, don't assume, right? Because when you assume, well, if you don't know what the rest of that is, ask someone else, ask someone after church. One of our values at this church is grace extended, but it's not just for our church. It's how we're supposed to live our lives, to not make assumptions about people because of the way they look or the color of their skin or because of what they drive or how much money you think they do or do not have or whatever, Assuming gets us into trouble. You see, and I'm going to make a few statements. Now listen, these are ridiculous statements, but, but I think you'll understand where I'm going. Don't assume that all immigrants are terrorists. You know that there are people who believe that. That immigrants just want to come here and either blow up our country or steal our stuff. That sounds more like apartheid South Africa than it does the United States of America that has a statue in New York Harbor in the Hudson River saying, hey, we're a beacon to the world. Bring us your poor and your tired and your weary. That there are people around the world looking to get out of desperate circumstances and that this nation stands as a beacon of hope to them, a promise of a different kind of life. I, came back from, I got back from a trip to Haiti a number of years ago and I was talking to a lady in our church about just how bad things were there and her statement to me was this, well, if it's so bad, why don't they just leave and go somewhere else? Ignorance is not an excuse. Where, where do you think they should go and how do you think they're going to get there? By the way, do you want them here? Oh, no. Well, then where do you think they should go? That we can't be ignorant of these things. Don't assume that every citizen is productive and a contributing member of society because that's not true either. Immigrants, quite often, are the hardest people, working people I know. Don't assume that Mexicans have, have tattoos or a group of black men are a gang. Right? That a black man putting up a sign in front of the school is doing something wrong, not something right. It sounds ridiculous when we say, yeah, people live this reality every day. Am I right? You've heard this statement that I'm going to quote someone famous. It'll be up on the screen. You know it. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And we're moving further and further away from that and not closer to it. 
Can I tell you this morning, this is not a skin issue. This is a sin issue. This is a sin issue. And here's what I know about sin. That almost all sin is rooted in one thing. Fear. Sin is rooted in fear. When Satan came to Eve in the garden, what he was preying on was her fear that she was not good enough. And he planted that seed that it comes back to fear. And throughout the ages, fear has been used to control and manipulate people. And that fear is rooted in one place, the lies of the enemy. So I want to close this morning by looking at a passage of Scripture that I believe will help at least set our course and at least give us a perspective that will, for us as the body of Christ, bring unity and at least help us start walking down a road. Now, I'm not saying that any of us in this room are in a place where we're, we're in the wrong place or in the wrong side of this conversation, but the reality is and the truth is that we all deal with some kind of prejudice and bias in our own hearts. We just do because of our worldview and where we grow up and how we grow up. And so the, the right response is, God, search my heart and reveal anything that is contrary to your heart and to your kingdom. 2 Timothy 1, 6-7. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God has given you or gave you when I laid my hands on you. For, the, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Three things that he touches on here, that, which are the opposite of moving in a spirit of fear. The first is this, power. That you have been empowered by God, by the Holy Spirit, to have an impact in the world around you. But that impact flows through relationship. It's all about relationship. Look at the person next to you and tell them, it's all about relationship. You guys need a little stirring up here. It's all about relationship. Why? Because we serve a relational God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are united because they're in perfect relationship with each other. It's all about relationship that Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father, to reconcile a relationship that was broken. And so the power that we've received is not just for us. So we can hoard it and say, I've got this power. This is mine. God to do in my life what I want him to do. No, the power that we've been entrusted with is not for you. It's designed to be given away. To be shared with those that you come across every day. Regardless of what their race is. Or their religion is. Or their background. Or their gender. Or whether they're disabled or not. Or whether you agree with them politically. Whether they're liberal, right, or conservative, right, or left. It doesn't matter. He doesn't draw any of those distinctions. He just says, I've given you this power. Now go use that power to be a blessing to everyone. Remember, Jesus uses the Samaritan and the Jewish man. He went to the extreme. He painted the most extreme picture he could. What does that look like for you? Who is the person that you're resistant to, that you're going, I don't know about that person? Who is it that when they walk into the room, you're like, you know, I'm just going to keep my distance? God's saying, the power I've given you is for that person. 
Would you move beyond yourself? Would you initiate relationship? And would you start drawing people to Jesus because of the power that is at work in you? The second thing is this, love. And we've talked a lot about love, but love is the impetus for the power. It's it's the thing that drives that power forward. If I don't love people, I'm not going to want to share with them. And so I have to love people. I have to love God and love people. They're non-negotiables. Remember, Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets hinge on this, that there are 613 Old Testament laws that the Jews are supposed to obey. And Jesus said, if you'll just do these two, all 611 of the others, don't, don't even worry about them because you, you won't need them because you'll be doing what you're supposed to do. That if we would truly lo- learn to love someone, if we will not truly love people, we won't reach them. If I don't love someone, I will not care for them. And I'm not just talking about the, loving the people who are in my proximity or in arm's reach. Jesus loves mankind. The Bible says that he is, his desire is that none would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. All. A love for mankind. Do you have a love for mankind? Do you have a love for God's creation? And a sound mind and self-discipline. And this is where I believe we've derailed as a nation. See, because when I think of our nation, I don't think sound mind and self-discipline. When I log onto Facebook, I definitely don't think sound mind and self-discipline, right? You just posted the first thing that came out of your brain, and whoa, like think about it for a second. But God's called us to walk with a sound mind and with self-discipline. In the Old Testament, in Judges 21-25, right at the end of the book of Judges, in fact, at the last, the last verse, says this, In those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And their, cloud, their thinking became clouded. Why? Because they were not under kingdom authority. As Christians, we are under kingdom authority, which means we come back to God and say, and back to his word and say, Lord, does this line up with who you are? Romans 12, 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, there is a way that the world, and by the world, I'm, uh, that can include the Western church, the American church, the conservative church, the Republican church. If it's not God's heart, then it's the world. But we allow the world and the behavior and the customs of this world to start shaping us and, and molding us and conforming us to it rather than us being confirmed, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and to his kingdom. And as we do, we get further and further away. It's easier and easier for us to draw judgments and make, uh, make judgments about people and who they are and who we think they are and, and justify our political stances. The ways of this world include, of course, culture, politics, media, and this rhetoric that we hear. Because that's what it is. Loose, idle words that have no basis. They're just noisy, clanging, ah. 
And what ends up happening is things escalate, they don't de-escalate. As the body of Christ, we've been called to de-escalate these kinds of things. That racism should be de-escalated in the body of Christ, not escalated. That there should be more unity in church than anywhere else in our nation. But I think we'd all agree that that's not the case. See, the ways of the world have taken the front seat, and God's word and his kingdom have taken a back seat. And I'm not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about us as Christ followers. I'm talking about us as Christ followers. See, because we need to seek to understand before we seek to be understood. Stephen Covey made that statement in his leadership book, but I love this. Do you understand before you open your mouth, do you understand? Before you post that post, before you share that link, do you understand? Have you actually taken time? See, because I grew up in a, in a nation where I was told what to think. And so Madiba was the enemy. And I didn't understand that he wasn't the enemy. And it took a long time for me to learn that. And my heart had to be broken before God. And I had to unlearn a lot of things. And am still unlearning. Because those things run deep. Discrimination and racism and the, the tentacles of, 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 of the evil that is behind that run deep. And I had to unlearn. We have to ask these kinds of questions. Do you know what you believe? And do you know why you believe it? And, and do you, does it align with God's word? Because just because you believe it doesn't make it true. Just because you believe something doesn't make it true. There are so many people in our country who will take a stand for something they believe with all of their might. And it's wrong. Because they've not done the work of discovery first on their knees before the Lord and in His Word. We have to ask this question, am I listening? The latest one, of course, is the NFL and players kneeling and the dishonoring of the flag, and I get it. And at the same time, I don't get it. See, because if I want to live in a nation where people tell me if I can kneel or not, I'll move to North Korea. Right? Am I listening to what's being said in those moments? Are you listening? Are you listening to the word of God? Are you listening to the stories and the lives that are being impacted? Or are we drawing conclusions based on assumptions? See, the, the danger of clouded thinking is it starts diminishing the light of the gospel in our lives. And we have to remove those filters and those layers of dirt and junk that get imposed by the culture around us and say, God, what are you calling me to do? How are you calling me to live? And it takes guts. It takes a tenacity. I never thought that I would love Nelson Mandela. And I wept when he died because he was my president. Never thought that could happen. 
But when you understand the power of God to transform your heart, there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. It doesn't matter. God says, I will remove all of those. And in the midst of that, he brings forgiveness, he brings healing, and he brings unity. We're going to close with communion today. I'm going to ask the ushers to prepare. And, um, we're going to partake together this morning. We'll pass the elements, and I want you to hold on to them because we'll give some instruction. But Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. His body was brutally, brutally beaten savagely beaten. He was nailed to a cross, one of the most excruciating forms of death a human being can experience. His blood was spilled, and he did this all for us. For us who were far from God so that we would be close to God. For us who have lived and lived very broken lives in so many different ways. We're broken in our sin. We're broken in our discrimination and in our prejudice and in racism. We're broken in our relationships. We're broken in so many different ways. But Jesus allowed his body to be broken knowing this, that in his brokenness we would find wholeness. Knowing this, that in three days that his broken body would be restored. And while he would still bear the scars, that life would come back into his body and that those wounds would be healed. And what was formerly broken would be made whole by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. I ask the men to come forward. This morning as we come to communion, I want to ask you specifically in this area, racism, discrimination, intolerance, assumptions maybe that you've made or things that, ways that you've thought about people, people groups, the other gender. Where is it in your life where you're broken, where God says, I want to bring healing. I want to bring wholeness to your life. The cup, the blood shed for us covers a multitude of sins. The book of Hebrews says that without the remission of the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus had to shed his blood. I had to come to a place in my life where I recognized I had sinned against God and against people because of the prejudice in my heart. And I had to allow the blood of Jesus to cover that sin. He can and he will. We're no longer slaves to fear that we are children of God. Would you go ahead and pass the elements and then we'll pray and receive together.